human beings have an inherent concept of truth. Okay, so and I'll use Shakespeare as an example. If I hear the words, this above all to thine own self be true. Somehow we know inherently that that's true. We just know it and it's iconic and it has power because it's simple and we know it to be true. So simple maxims, simple unavoidable truths amplify. So I think that telling the truth about what climate change is about, which is about um, human death, human compatibility, the ability to live it, like not wear yourself on the planet and suffer every day. That's really what we're talking about. And so I think that the message would go further if we told the truth of what the message is, which is not about the environment, you know, because it's hard when you're sitting in the UK. Why do you care about the environment if it's a rainy and you're heading down to the pub for, you know, a pasty or, you know, some bangers and mash, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's a ridiculous thing. But if, but if you said someone said global people killer and that's the truth, you don't care and it's coming for you, you would kind of go, huh, maybe I need to take a look at that. I'm Johnny Prest, and this is the Brand Master Flash Podcast. Your brand is your community. It's their instinctive connectedness with you in their hearts and minds. This podcast explores how to define and deliver a brand strategy that is true to who you really are. It will inspire your team, connect you with your customers, and make a positive difference. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Johnny here. So it's been ages since I've done a recording. I've made a podcast, I made a video, and I'm finally now coming back to make more content for Brandmaster Flash. And the reason being is you might have heard in my last show, um, we had a baby at the beginning of this year. She's a beautiful girl called Cleo. She's five months tomorrow, and it's just been a whirlwind, uh, an amazing whirlwind. So myself and Natalie are juggling baby and two other children and the business. And unfortunately, getting out there and making content has kind of been pushed to the back burner. However, I'm still thinking, I'm still making stuff, I'm kind of still writing, I'm still blogging, but I had, had some time to think about what content do I want to make and what am I going to put out this year? And if you know anything about me or the agency, our work is based around people and planet protecting projects. And that's what I do day to day in the agency with Seed. And I wanted Brandmaster Flash to complement this because I care about it and I love these projects and I want to find more ways that brands can be more connected with important subjects like the environment, about people. And if the deep truth of a brand is all about being good and doing good and protecting their people and trying to do things outside of the organization that will help the environment, then I want to facilitate that. I want to be a brand specialist and identity, identity designer that's there for them to help them through that transition or through that journey and along that journey. 
So I want Brandmaster Flash, the channel, to echo more of what's happening in the agency. So I've been kind of making moves and trying to think about who could I talk to? Who can I go out there and talk to to have really good conversations about creativity, about brand and branding and all the things that I do and I love, but in a world of planet and people protecting projects. Now this leads me quite nicely onto the guest of the show today. His name is Jamie Mustard, which is an awesome name by the way. And I got onto him by, I was look, at the beginning of the year, I was looking for different books to read and I stumbled on a book called The Iconist. And I just loved the title for a start, but at the time I was trying to find ways that where I could be more visible. I was trying to improve my visibility, trying to get my name out there, build my personal brand. And this book just jumped out. Um, it's a really interesting book that it is about, in some ways, identity design, but it's about how do famous icons through time, whether it be an inventor or a musician or an actor, um, how do, why do they stand out? What did they do differently from everyone else that made them stand out? And Jamie talks about a theory of his in this, which is about blocks. And he explains it actually in the interview, which we're about to hear. But if you hold up a block to a baby, they immediately reach for it. They're transfixed on it. And he kind of used this analogy for why do people transfix onto certain icons and people through time. And it's through a theory which is called a block. Now, we'll talk about this in the interview, but actually what was really important about this conversation and the conversation I had just before that with Jamie was that he was really interested in the environment. He's doing loads of work in the environment. His network, his community is all based around people that care about the environment and we instantly connected. So you'll hear in this interview that we talk about the book, we talk about him as a writer, as a creative and all the amazing things that he does, but then we connect that with the environment. We talk about climate change and all the things that we, that we care about that matters to us. So I won't waffle on anymore. Um, I want you to have a listen to the interview now. So this is um, writer, creative, artist, the author of The Iconist. This is Jamie Mustard. Enjoy. All right. Hello. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining today. How are you doing? I am doing, uh, I'm doing well this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit of a late start, but uh over, you know, I, I'll say my excuse is that I'm phoning in from America. Yeah, well, just for the audience and viewers, Jamie rushed to uh, get on the conversation and a quick, quick shave. And he, he was so rapid in the shave that he's sliced a little bit of his cheek there, which is amazing. Oh, man, you, you gave it away. <laughs> but we'll, we'll survive it. We'll survive it. You will. You will. Yeah. Ja Jamie, I want to I dive in today. I want to start the conversation about you because um we, we've spoken before and i don't know a lot about you and i kind of want to go to the beginning here because firstly i'd like to know how you became a writer that's really what i know about because often people fall into writing with unusual stories so i'd like to let's go back down memory lane tell me your path and oh, how you gosh. arrived into writing uh, desperation <laughs> uh i mean yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really, it's kind of a, a big question to start the conversation with. I mean, it doesn't sound like a big question, but it's a far bigger question than maybe it sounds like on the surface. 
But the reality is, is that, um, you know, I was a kid of poverty and neglect, and I grew up kind of not going to school. And I was, I was semi-literate into my late teens. I could read at a high level, but I probably wrote like a second grade, probably maybe first grade in America, second grade elementary school uh, into my late teens by the time I was 19. I had a relative that knew that I was in trouble that was in New York. I grew up in near downtown Los Angeles. And she said, uh, you know, anytime you want to turn your life around and, and you can come stay here for as long as you want as long, and rent, all your expenses will be taken care of. But rent is you'll be have to be in school, some kind of school, beauty school, plumbing school, trade school, any kind of school. So uh, uh, I, uh, I tried when I was 16, but I just couldn't face the literacy issues. And then by 19, I was staring down the barrel of a life of manual labor. I, I got desperate. And so I called my, that relative and I said, uh, does the offer still stand? And she said, yes. And I said, send me a ticket. So all of a sudden I was in this environment in 19 where I had my needs taken care of, eyeglasses, medical, food, a nice place. You know, I just didn't have the kind of monkey on my back of constant stresses. And I started doing classes uh, remedial English and math at a school, uh, kind of a local um, small college. Uh, uh, and uh, five and a half years later, I graduated from university in your country. I graduated from the London School of Economics. And so it was, it's, that's, that sounds like a crazy story. And it is um, a lot of, you know, it just, I just had this thing in me that all of a sudden when I didn't have all of these pressers there was like a closet smart guy in there <laughs> and uh, it, and it happened very rapidly. And then, and then, but to answer the kind of writer question is when I started coming up with ideas and having ideas, you know, 15 years ago of seeing patterns in the world and that nobody was talking about. Um, I thought I, I really want to bring some, some, I think these ideas are important to the world. And, um, uh, and I, um, I, so I, I thought, well, I can't, I'm not willing to have anybody else bring my ideas to the world. So I better learn to write because, um, uh, I want to be the, the author of my own ideas. And so yeah. that was kind of what saw, got me sitting down and just, you know, writing the key to writing is time served. It's pounding away. And doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And um, that's what, and that takes a lot of discipline, which I grew up without. Um, so I had, it, you know, desperation is probably uh, a really true answer to how I, how I became a writer. I hope that wasn't too heavy. I don't want to bum your writer, your viewers out this early in the morning, but, you know, kind of a Charles Dickens story for, you know, anybody uh, you know, to, to start off uh, the podcast. I mean, it really was and is kind of like that. I, I think it's inspiring because, you know, you, 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 you didn't naturally fall into it or given the opportunities to do it. You know, you had to, it sounds like you had to fight really to, to get to somewhere where you had the opportunity to write. But I, I've also heard that the best writers have something to say. And it sounded like, you know, you had a story to tell, you had things that you wanted to project out into the world. And, you know, the you got the leg up, but it was your 
need and your want and your drive to say something in the world that has got you to where you are now. So it's a great story. It's a great okay, story. well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, it was very difficult at the time. I remember when we got the acceptance letter to uh, uh, LSE, that relative <laughs> said to me, because we just were, I was just learning so fast, but I was also pushing myself to make up time. Uh, when I realized that I was making progress. And I remember when we got that letter uh, that summer and she said, uh, how are you doing this? And I said, I don't know. And, but what I was thinking in my mind is uh, I'm fucking desperate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, and writing is a humbling process because, you know, I have a new book coming out next year and um, I've got some stuff that I wrote during uh, COVID. So, you know, I'm, I kind of stack stuff and um then I meet, you know, writers that have been doing it, you know, longer, that it started earlier. And uh, I'm working with an incredible writer right now, a woman named Holly Lorinx. Uh, and uh, when I when I work with her, I realize she's, it's humbling. There's levels, right? So it's just one of those things you you do. I, I've always said about writing, so it, it, within my craft, I, I work within brand, which takes me all the way through different types of organizations at different levels, but I predominantly work within marketing and communication. So I work with a lot of writers from press to PR, but also creative writers as well. And I've always said with writing, it's like playing bass guitar. So it, it's easy to pick up, but it's hard to master. And I agree with there's, there's definitely levels and it's only till the more writing that I'm doing, I realize when I notice a good writer or a great writer. Uh, and that kind of gravitated me towards you because I, I picked up your book, which we'll talk about in a bit, The Iconist. Um, and the one, of the, one of the things that really draw me to a good book is a, is a good story, obviously, but a good book that can be relate, um, relatable to business. So I, my books tend to flow between business, marketing, advertising, and philosophy. I, I find that, that there's a kind of, they weave into nicely around those areas. And yours kind of drifted into a few of them. And it, it goes into it goes into marketing because you can use it as a, as a marketing book, but also it goes into philosophy. It goes into creativity and it flows between them. But before we get onto the book, I'd quite like to know, how you kind of went from economics, the degree, then to being a professional writer. How, how, how did, how, where was the transition there? Well, I do more, I do, I do, I'm a professional writer. I have a lot of things written, but I, I also, I, I see myself ultimately as an artist. I mean, I, I work a lot as an art director, using, working with different artists and making things, you know, probably products, brands, things like that. Uh, but that's a, you know, a good question. And it kind of goes to the heart of the story that you asked at the top of the of the of the show um you know what you know people sometimes say well what was that like because nobody nobody really expects that from me you know that was the thing that really surprised me when I got to university in London was I kind of thought people would be able to kind of always see that where I came from and because I can see it on people that come from where I come from and it really didn't read on me and so but you know people would often ask me well, what was that like because I crossed class in a very dramatic way. And I would say, you know, as a kid, I, I felt very invisible, just, you know, invisible, just faded into the, the dusty, um, you know, mo you know, monochromatic 
heat of con of concrete and brick Los Angeles. I mean, you would have driven right by me like a, a, a brick in the road. I couldn't have been more invisible as a child. And I think that because of all this, this kind of go, this goes to the heart of what kind of why I wrote that, that book is, um, so I understand what it feels like to be invisible. And I believe that because of all the mass messaging that we experience today in the world, uh, the overload of messaging, that, and I could get into many specifics on this that we're assaulted with, that we all experience the invisibility, no matter what our class is, that I experienced as a kid. All of us know that it's harder than ever to grab attention. And so, and there's actual psychological manifestations that come with that that are serious psychological manifestations. There's a great book written on that by a psychologist. It came out in 2004. It's a hit book by Barry Schwartz, who's a psychologist uh, and a professor of social theory at Skidmore College um, about the psychological ramifications of the invisibility created by competing you as an individual, you as a business competing with all this messaging. What's, I, what's incredible is the successful companies that hire me because they feel this way about their brand or their product or some aspect of their messaging. So, uh, you know, it seems as though art and economics are separate. You know, I've always been interested in art. My mother, uh, my, my, my absent mother was a, a very talented uh, oil painter. So I grew up around it, even though it was weird. Um, but um, if you think what, what, where, where the connection, so you know, one of the reasons I, I was excited to study economics is because I, did, I knew I was interested in doing art, maybe long-term uh, or things, uh, uh, ideas. I wanted, you know, a lens in which to look at the world that was not, that would, I wanted a broad I wanted, you know, constructs that would allow me to look at the world in different ways. Um, so that was very um, intentional once I got into a position where I could make those decisions. Um, but ultimately, if you ultimately, the, the Iconist is a book about the economics of attention. Right. We have, um, you, you know, we you know, we're, we're bombarded with with 10 to 15,000 advertising messages a day compared to 1950, which would have been 250 advertising messages a day. A human being couldn't process a thousand messages a day. So what does it mean to be hit with 10 to 15,000? It completely changes the way that we as human beings process information. And it completely changes the way we as human beings feel in the world. We have a, a low level anxiety. We all have paralysis. We'll have dissatisfaction with our lives because especially the, the richer and the more we think we have to offer, and the more we think we're not getting the eyeballs that we deserve, that disconnect um, is at the heart of what I call the economics of attention. And economics has always been used, you know, uh, to, you know, in, in profound ways to, to better the world. You know, whether it's, you know, Amartya Sen and war and the connection between war and famine, the economics of war and famine, um, or uh, Muhammad Yunus and micro lending, right? So, yeah, so to me, I thought this is a problem that's affecting people in terms of their mental health, but also on the flip side of that, from a Maslow standpoint, right? Like as you get above um, basic needs like food or water and you get into upper echelon kind of things that feed the human being, self-actualization, transcendence, this has been greatly hindered, no matter what your class, uh, by the economics of attention. And so, you know, 
in a lot of ways, the, the, what drove me to stick it out and kind of, and write that book, which kind of opened the world to me, uh, you know, opened a lot of doors for me, uh, was that I, that was, it's a severe social problem and, uh, and the social capital or the, the spiritual and emotional capital that's gained when you can stand out at will, what that does for the individual uh, in a positive way, you know, how it affects them internally is so powerful. I just had to do it. Yeah. There's, there's about three points there, actually, or maybe a few more that I'd like to jump on there. The first thing that you mentioned there was about being heard, about being seen. And I want to look at that. But before we go to that, I'd like to talk about Maslow, actually, because I hear Maslow getting talked about a lot, actually. And I, and I keep looking at Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs. And um, I, I've, I also feel sometimes that I'm not seen or heard in, with the work that I do. And I'm at peace with it to a point. And I looked at Maslow's the other day and I looked at, I realized I felt why I'm not, I'm not reaching that self-actualization point or I'm, you know, I'm in the, in the belief that I'm doing because there's one chunk in that triangle that I feel that I'm stuck at and it's the community one. And it's right in bang in the middle. And you've got to go past the nurturing, the community, the relationship parts bit to get into the self-actualization um segment there's two segments above that one is self-actualization i can't remember what the one is above that um self of belonging i think it is is it self of belonging self-actualization yeah, something yeah, like that but yeah. just below that's community sure. and i feel like just to jump back on what we're saying about not being seen and not being heard sometimes maybe we're not seen or being heard one because we're all trying to be heard and seen on through digital through screens and through social and stuff and we have a lack of community and actually what I'm finding now in my profession is that I'm getting seen and heard a lot more by putting the screens down by putting the social media down and just getting out in the world and shouting a bit louder in real life um, but it, it took me a long time to get there but I also believe from an iconist point of view that I needed something that people could see and hear that they can connect with and it's taken me 10 years to get there so I, I do agree with you in terms of being seen and heard and the self-actualization. I feel like to, but people are trying to get to that top bit and they're missing some of the stages there. I suppose there isn't, there isn't a question there. It's kind of more of a, uh, a feedback on what you just said. Yeah, I mean, uh, can I comment on your statement? Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, I listen, I'm not a big believer in... in existing through digital communication, right? That's pushed and it's pushed by very smart, credible people that I respect. People like Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, if you don't think you have to live through uh, social media to grow something, you're an idiot. Um, uh, and I don't agree with that. I think that there's things you can do where you become so relevant of a fish that people will come to you. But even more importantly, like say that we don't have that debate, right? Uh, Social media, and again, I don't want to be cliched, but there's nothing truly uh, social about it. It's not, we survive as human beings through connection, through interconnection, physical interconnection, not phones, not screens, uh, none of that, right? So what it's done is it's created this illusion of connection. And it really what it, do, it does is it makes us feel lonely. Mm. It makes us feel sad. It can make us feel miserable. And the only thing that really makes us feel alive 
I mean, this is kind of a separate issue than invisibility, right? Uh, is, tr is in person connection and interchange of ideas and emotion with other human beings. That's what it's all about. That's what, for, that's what human beings are about for all the marbles. You know, that's the, that's the, the core. Um, so I think that no matter what you do, to my book, my book to make your, if you were to read my book on the primal laws of why we notice one thing and ignore another, that's to make you more successful and fulfill you as a person in terms of your self-expression. It's never going to make up for the fact that you need to be interacting with other human beings every single day and contributing to them and having them contribute to you in person, physically, um, to be balanced as a human being. Uh, that is, nothing makes up for that. We need to get back to, we're going to have to create, and I, you know, I already see it, intentional physical community constructs, you know, with, uh, to, you know, if you're, if there's, if there, listen, I'll even say this, no matter how bad your life is, okay, um, if you have true in-person physical community, you'll be at an even point. You will, you, the, the likelihood of you being depressed and feeling unfulfilled will be reduced by 50 to 75%. And one of the reasons I feel strongly about that is because I grew up in poor neighborhoods. Poor neighborhoods have tons of community because that's all you have, right? And, 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 and so, uh, you know, poor people have community and they do pretty well with it. it. It gets them far. So if you can find a way to have true community, Real physical world community is the only community where you're contributing to that community and it's contributing to you. Um, you can, that's going to make everything that you do uh, exponentially more fulfilling and exponentially more probable. Great. Agreed. Yeah, nicely yeah. put. Agreed. Agreed. Um, when, just before we got onto that bit, you were talking about... Um, your skills and obviously you're a professional writer but you're rangy in terms of your skill set you know from art direction which you mentioned creative direction you know you've been involved in the in the brand communications marketing realm for many many years now I suppose my question to that would be when where are you happiest where do you find the most amount of joy god that's like that's a really rough I mean there's like there's personal happiness and there's contributing happiness uh you know on a contributing happiness, I'm, you know, I get asked to teach it, uh, to, to, to guest lecture at, at schools. I'm guest lecturing at Parsons next month. I guess lectured to portfolio students. I guess lectured there last year, Pratt, the Portland uh, College of, uh, Portland, the North, the, the Pacific Northwest College of Art. I guess lectured at, uh, to young writers at Georgetown University whole international business school. So getting people young and giving them these ideas before, uh, to, as a, an, uh, you know, as a way to make them think about, um, not being, feeling like they're a little, you know, uh, um, uh, what are you, a needle in a haystack as they say, right. Uh, getting kids to kids young, that's where I'm, uh, and, and giving those lectures and talking to those students is where I'm incredibly happy on a community standpoint. It makes me just incredibly happy. And then on a personal level, when I, you know, what motivates me, because I do things and I grew up in a, in a way that was very built around instant gratification and short-term gain. 
And so I find it very strange that my life revolves around things that take two to three years to do, not just books. I'm working on a film project, even like sometimes a design project will take me six months, something that I, to get it perfectly right. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm designing and I'm doing concept art and I, uh, and I'm, and I struggle, <laughs> you know, I, I helped create a watch that there's a small batch watchmaker in the United States. He makes, he's probably the top small batch watchmaker in the, and he's in Montana, four presidents where his watches and uh, a bunch of movie stars. And he asked me to collaborate on a watch for him. He'd made the case and he'd made the bezel and he wanted me to make a watch dial for him. And I was such a big fan of this guy that it was just incredibly flattering that uh, he would ask me to do that. And I don't even know if he thought for sure I could do it. <laughs> and that project took a long time. I mean, I, it probably took me four months. And when I landed it, and he, what he'd given me to design around was so, so beautiful. And he sent me these samples and I love watches and how they work. And, and so at the end of that four months, when we landed on it, um, and I worked with um, a couple, a, a, a designer and a couple collaborators. Uh, that when I when I land on something after the struggle, and it's beautiful, it's truly something beautiful and something that no one's ever seen before. Um, that's where I'm most happiest. I tend to get motivated by, you know, I'm not, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like I might, you know. If you looked on the outside, you'd think, oh, he likes big ideas. He's looking for big ideas, high concept art, that kind of thing. That's that's actually really not what it is. The thing is that making the things that I make are hard. It's hard and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of iterations. So if it's something that I haven't seen before, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning to kind of go for the long haul. If I know I'm at the end of this, somebody is going to be experiencing. I think the iconist is that way, the iconist. Um, if, if, if I feel like I'm going to be creating an experience that's somewhat new for somebody in terms of the way they see the world, in terms of a piece of art that is a portal that they can step into, in terms of any sort of design or art, that's the, 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 the idea of making something new is, is allows me, it gives me the focus to just kind of get behind the mule, as Tom Waits says, get behind the mule in the morning and plow, which is what you have to do. And that's a true, a true definition of an artist there, producing something new, producing something, a new experience. And, and uh, a lot of the crossover there between what you do, uh, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in the UK, we call them producers. You know, it's not just a, a film producer, but uh, just a producer. You produce something, you come with a brief, you've got artistic direction and you produce things. So it's amazing. And I, I often talk about it on this podcast for people like yourself that are rangy with their skills. Um, it's that range and that world experience in multiple disciplines and mediums and platforms. That's, you know, that's where in true innovation comes from because you're, you're cross fertilizing your knowledge and your skills in different areas. Okay. I'm going to, um, I'm going to jump onto our, my quick fire section. James. Okay, um, all right. But that's a really interesting concept. I've never thought about it that way before, Johnny, that like how much the cross pollination is affecting me. Or affecting, you know, but I think you're probably right. I think, you know, having, you know, doing something in fashion and then having that influence something in film, then having that influence, you know, I, I think that I kind of see it as all kind of the same stuff, you know. Um, I've also made music. Um, 
uh, yeah, so no, it's it's in. I, I I do think that that kind of immersive cross pollinization. I've never kind of articulated it that way. Is probably a massive factor in you know the ideation. Oh, totally. And and I I I can I can sympathise with that because I I'm similar that I've through each kind of decade or half decade of my life I've been obsessed with something in terms of creativity. I also came from music, art. You know, all different types of visual art and then landed in business. And I feel that now that I, that's why I call myself a strategist, because I suppose there's producer in there, there's art directions, a bit of everything, but people come to me with a problem, a creative problem, and I come back with a creative solution. And I suppose that's where I find my at my most happiest is just every job I do is different. And I get the feeling that's the same as you, you know, I can see even just from behind you, there's a, a whole selection, there's a chessboard, there's art, there's your book, there's all sorts, <laughs> there's a music, you know. And, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. see. There's more of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Mega. Yeah, yeah, I, I surround myself with things. But, you know, and that's kind of how we met. I'm very curious about, uh, you know, um, well-designed and beautiful things, you know, and uh, you said said something nice about me. And then I went and looked at your kind of your 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 story your your identity dna and i was uh just in, it was incredibly impressive to see somebody uh who's i instantly kind of liked loved your aesthetic and so i reached out i thought oh this guy's got a really great eye. <laughs> he said something nice i should say hello to him yeah so that's you know that's how we met yeah nice thank you it yeah. just shows you that you you know, um, curating a nice instagram feed works so i'll carry on doing it thank you okay yeah. quick fire the, these questions aren't the questions are quick fire, but the answers are normally pretty long. Um, but they give the, give the best answers. Okay. Um, I've been asking this question for a long time, right now since the beginning of COVID. But I, the question is, it's the most important thing that you've learned in the past two years. Oh man, God, that's not a quick fire. It's definitely not a quick fire answer. Um, the most important thing. I mean that would be my latest project. You know, I mean, I, can I talk about it? Yeah. I, I, I knew that we were going to get onto this at some point and let's just blast okay. into it now. And then we have I'm to talk about, about the, yeah, we have to talk about the environment at some point. Cause I, that's an issue that I, I was thinking about that before the interview. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I believe that art is a bullhorn. It's an amplifier. It's a cutting tool. It's a laser. You can have somebody that's very closed and you can sit them down in front of a movie or a film and they'll open up. You can have somebody that's very closed and you can, they can play a song by Tom Petty or somebody or Neil Young or, or whoever, and they will open up. So what art, art opens people up and it's an amplifier. And so um, I often see myself as somebody that uh, is meant to come, you know, work with um, engineers, scientists, um, social change agents that are maybe not necessarily artists, but maybe we form a connection. And then my job is to um, amplify, you know, we will we'll collaborate for, to use art to amplify <clears throat> their work. So a little over a year and a half ago, I met a, a, a very well-known doctor and scientist who lives in Chicago. He's an, an older, um, he was born in, in Ukraine actually, before living in Russia and then Vienna, and then finally making his way to medical school in Chicago. And he's come across this incredible invention that's been out there for, uh, well, I think he first published on it about 16 or 17 years ago. Um, uh, 
where, and this is going to sound incredible to our listeners, but you can look it up. This is something that's been on the Joe Rogan podcast, 60 Minutes in America, Good Morning America. It's been, uh, or good uh, or CBS This Morning. It's been on um, uh, big platforms in Europe as well. This is something that's uh, administered all over the world. But this scientist, he figured out about 16 or 17 years ago how the sympathetic nervous system works um, and what, and, uh, what causes uh, post-traumatic stress, which is actually a biological injury, and you can see it on a brain scan. And not only did he isolate this, but he figured out a way to reset someone to the pre-trauma state, no matter what the traumatic event is, bad childhood, I'm doing this product project in uh, partnership with special forces. In, um, so I've been going a lot to uh, um, Fort Bragg. Uh, that where they're doing 3,000 a year of this treatment, but no, no, uh, no drugs, non-invasive over one to two days. Uh, this doctor can reset someone to the pre-trauma state. I think it's the greatest medical innovation since the discovery of penicillin in 1928, the greatest human innovation since the moon landing. And it's not known in the mainstream. And the reason it's not known in the mainstream is because it's when you see it, uh, you know, this guy's testified before Congress, Obama, um, endorsed this guy's work in two, by as far back as 2008. But the reason it's not in the mainstream is when you see it, it's always associated with the extreme, which is, you know, uh, 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 what are you, a special forces fighter or a 9-11 responder or something like that. Uh, but I think that a massive swath of the global population has this tripped inside them, maybe 30 to 40%. And um, that's the next book that's coming out. That book comes out next April. Though it's, it's a book between that I've written with the doctor. Uh, and it's really the story of how an artist and a doctor kind of come together and enlist this group of Avengers to bring this into the mainstream so that people that would never associate with the fact that they have uh, a traumatic experience, have had a traumatic experience, um, uh, are able to get this because they're, you can get this in Bristol now. And I think they're about to open a clinic in London and get it in Sydney. They're opening, there's a private equity firm in Chicago, a very multi-billion dollar private equity firm in Chicago that teamed up with the doctor and is bringing this to cities all over the world. So that's my, my latest project. I think that I'm answering the question. <laughs> uh, and, and again, you know, what, what, what are we doing? We're using art to, um, to take this thing that's not, should be the most, it should be as known as relativity uh, and uh, are known about. And, um, we're, and but it's it's associated with the extreme and we're going to bring it right into the middle of mainstream society through the use of art amazing and yeah. tell me the connection between the this this and climate because we mentioned because we briefly spoke about this um because you mentioned about the way that people are dealing with the environment and climate as a uh-huh. as a form of ptsd is like what's the what's the connection well, listen, there's two things that can cause uh, um, your sympathetic nervous system. Well, you have a gangle of neck, a gangle of nerves, a, set, a railway station of nerves, nerves on each side of your neck. And uh, it's called the stellate ganglion. It's a railway station. It's a, you know, a, a nerve center. And when you experience a traumatic event or prolonged allostatic load, which allostatic load just means extreme stress. But what happens is uh, that this thing, you know, if you're, you're about to slip and fall off a mountain, your amygdala sends a signal to these nerves in your neck and you, uh, 
um, it jerks you into fight or flight, which you either run or fight to save your life. So it's very useful. We need it as biological organisms. Well, if the trauma is great or the extreme stress goes on too long, which can be from a bad relationship, it can be from an emotionally abusive childhood. No one even has to touch you. Just extreme stress too long, an absent father, poverty, lots of things can trip this. Um, uh, then it stays stuck. It stays stuck in fight or flight. And then the signal reverses, telling your brain 365 days a year, seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day that you could be killed. And there's about seven key symptoms that go along with it. Hypervigilance, paranoia, extreme anxiety, lack of sleep, hyperarousal. Uh, so it can, you know, in the military community where people are trained to protect, it's manifests itself uh, as a suicidal ideation in poor, poor communities where life is cheap, it manifests itself as homicidal ideation, but this gangle of nerves. And again, you can see it on an MRI is like a lying to your brain. And you, so you really believe something that is very mild is life or death and you act in a life or death way. Okay. Um, hair trigger, you know, responding without thinking or processing. Okay. So that's kind of, there's seven core symptoms. And one of the things that I set out to do was I'd gotten invited to speak at Fort Bragg to special forces uh, for the Iconis. I actually worked with our PSYOPs people on uh, how to great create uh, better counter propaganda against the Russians and the Chinese. It was pretty weird because um, uh, I don't know how I feel about American foreign policy <laughs> uh, often. Uh, most of the time, I don't feel very good about it. So it was very weird to get invited by the military and then to go spend all this time uh, with the military. And then now they... Um, but one of the things that when I saw, saw these core seven symptoms, I didn't, uh, and I realized what they were, I didn't see the military. I saw the neighborhood I grew up in. I saw poor people. So that was the, what I was curious about. Is this biological injury occurring in inner cities? I don't think it occurs in rural poverty. I think it occurs in inner city poverty. And there are people in jail because they're not processing and they're thinking this gangle of nerves in their neck lies to their amygdala. And then they react in a way where they commit an old impulse crime that they never intended to do when they're 19 because this thing is lying to them because they're literally biologically stuck in fire flight. And now it can be reset. You can Google a DSR, dual sympathetic reset, and it'll all come up. And it's very simple when you start to understand it. It's not so, it sounds outrageous and sci-fi, but it's really not when you start to understand the science behind it. It's incredibly simple. So I set out to see if I could, if I went into a jail and interviewed murderers, would they have this exact same seven symptoms as a guy coming back from Afghanistan, whether he's going back to Birmingham or whether he's going back to, um, you know, Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, that man or that woman does have the exact same seven symptoms as a person that's sitting on death row. There is, you know, uh, um, very often, the majority of the time. So, when you're looking at climate, right? So first, there's two issues as to why I think it relates to climate, okay? One is um, what drives people in, in the world? There's two primary human kind of drivers to me. One is love. It can drive us to be a prime minister or a CEO or a pop star, but it can also drive us to addiction, despair, and suicide, right? And I think the other primary driver uh, of the human condition is trauma. I think it can drive us to be a prime minister, a CEO, or a pop star, or to addiction, despair, and suicide, right? So these are two binary primary uh, human drivers. And um, 
I think a lot of people that get successful, that are driven to that kind of success where they can have influence, are people that are driven by trauma. I think it's very common. I mean, look at our world leaders. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, people that are driven uh, to uh, make, uh, that run energy companies, <laughs> right? Or people that end up in positions of power are often driven by trauma. And so you're getting people in these decision-making capacities that are very rigid in their thinking, incredibly defensive in their thinking, and um, uh, unable to, unwill you know, you're, how, how well are you going to communicate to someone to look at something holistically and not just look at a part uh, mm -hmm. when you're talking about the planet um, if they're stuck in fight or flight? They're just, they're not willing to kind of look outside their sphere. So that's um, one, uh, that's the kind of major way uh, where I think um, uh, um, people in positions of influence uh, don't see the writing on the wall and do the right thing. And I agree because, um, you know, if we are aiming towards to get net zero within the next eight years or, or, or at least, contribute towards that it has to be done at top leadership you know it has to be done you know we're looking at big massive monumental changes in the way that we live work operate move um the, all the systems and processes that are, are involved in in running and living together it has to be done at a top level and if these top le leaders aren't making the right decisions now um then it's going to be really difficult to do this yeah, I don't know the story of the prime minister of China, but if you, what's the prime minister of India? What's his name? Narinder? He's sure. got, if you look at his story and you look back at where he comes from, uh, it's a very difficult life. If you look back at, you know, where Putin comes from, I, I mean, it's an incredible, you know, you know, uh, not having a bathroom, sharing an apartment with two families, gangs, rats, uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying it would make him a better person. But I, I, but it would take the edge off, you know, like this is a guy that's uh, stuck in fight or flight. I'm not trying to excuse it, but, you know, these are people that are, you know, making uh, massive energy decisions. Right. Mm. And in certain ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so uh, I, I believe that it, it, it is a, it is a factor uh, in terms of, um, uh, but, you know, but, in, but the other factor that where I think, where I think the, the biggest mistake that I think about when I think about um, climate is um, it's always, you know, I think the messaging has always been off on that. You know, when I started writing The Iconist, for some reason, you know, I, I when I started beta testing The Iconist over thir 13 years ago or something, um, I, I thought a lot about climate. It was something that was constantly on my mind. I almost wrote about it in the book. I, I just thought it would be po too polarizing. And I didn't want the book to have any sort of political affiliations. Mm. Uh, but I think that, it, you know, the, the focus on the environment has always been kind of, um, uh, you know, that we ought to save the environment. And, you know, I have this friend of mine, who's a, uh, a TV producer out in Los Angeles. Uh, and he said, he, he always used to say to me, the environment's going to be fine, Jamie, the environment's going to be fine. And what he was saying was, uh, you know, yeah, it's going to shake us off like fleas and we're going to die out as a species and it's going to regenerate. So the environment's not going anywhere. So I always felt like that message 
messaging is confusing. I think what we're really talking about when we're talking about the environment is the habitability of the planet and the, um, the comfortability of the planet for billions of people uh, and the survival of the species, right? And so that that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about the environment. We're talking about something that kills people and makes life unbearable if it continues to get worse, right? Um, and even if you don't believe that, uh, you know, uh, human-made activity is causing it, uh, it's definitely a contributing factor. And it's definitely, uh, our, we can do activities to reverse it. And so it's happening and we can reverse it. So it doesn't matter uh, why, what you think is causing it because we can reverse it and it needs to be reversed. So the, even the argument of like the back and forth argument, it's human made. It's not, it's human. That's not the point. The point is it's occurring and we're seeing the crazy weather patterns. We're seeing these ice shelves melt um, and we're seeing what it's doing to uh, climates around the world. We'll have, I don't know how many climate refugees we'll have in the next 25 years, but I'm sure it's a shocking and terrifying amount. The weather, I mean, I came back to Portland a year and a half ago during, or no, two years ago during the summer and our city, you couldn't go outside. We had five foot visibility for five days. I had flown back from a, some doing something in the middle of COVID and there was fires so bad up here where it rains all the time. It makes, it would make England blush how much it rains here. Okay. And uh, uh, the city was filled with smoke for five days due to fires. I, I can't imagine, uh, I didn't even think that was possible. You know, and now we have these droughts and I grew up anyway, I'm, I'm prattling, but in California where, you know, even the wealthiest people in Bel Air and Beverly Hills are, are having to have uh, dirty lawns, which is just not something a wealthy person does in Los Angeles, but that's the water shortage, right? So we can reverse it. So the argument of who's causing it, waste of time, can we reverse it? Is it affecting human inhabitability? Messaging that addresses that, I don't ever see it. Well, and that's something I'd like to jump on there is the, is the messaging. So the narrative and the messaging, and obviously it's different in the UK and the US, but the US are seeing the effects of climate change at their front door now, whether it be floods, storms, fires, it's right there. And so you, you know, it's right in people's faces to, to say that this is what's happening and we need to change the way that we live. Here in the UK, we don't see any different changes at all. And that's why it's difficult to 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 get people to change their behavior you can't motivate people because they don't see it they don't feel it it's not happening to them so trying to see, when people say well you know what's climate change and you explain about all these different things the first thing a lot of people think well that's that's nothing to do with me it's not in my country i don't get that but in the us it's right there how how are things different then in the us in terms of trying to get people to change the way they think and behave about climate change well, this, I mean, this is the point, you know, it's become politicized here. You know, I'm in Oregon, you know, so you don't think you're going to feel it in the UK. One of the reasons I left California is like the, the fires. I mean, I was I drove, you know, I had my stuff shipped and drove up. And I remember driving at seven o'clock in the morning um, when I when I first moved up here over 10 years ago uh, with the Los Angeles on fire. I mean, there was smoke in the air when I was driving out. Right. Um, so just because you're not experiencing it yet, uh, I mean, listen, even first the way we're talking about it right now. OK, I mean, there's a couple of things I'll say. Let me start with this. I mean, there's a great I think he's American, American philosopher named Buck Minster Fuller. And he was the guy he's the grandfather of modern environmentalism. 
and he coined the term forever ago, spaceship earth, right? And he talks about a concept of what he calls parts-based consciousness. And that that's the problem when it comes to uh, understanding the environment. Like if you, and the way he, I would explain it is this, if you heard a French horn, you'd never heard music before, and you'd heard a French horn, you wouldn't then start thinking of a symphony. You'd just think, okay, there's a, that's all we have is the French horn, right? So the, what got us into this mess is parts-based consciousness. These guys that started figuring out how to pull oil out of the ground 100 years ago, uh, or longer than that now, but, you know, second industrial revolution, um, uh, they were not thinking with, they were thinking with this thing they were doing. They had no way to predict climate, you know, uh, um, in your planet inhabitability. So they were just thinking with a part, right? So one thing that helps is when we, if we start to look at everything that we do in terms of how it affects the whole, not holistically, but I think uh, Buckminster Fuller would call it holism. So part of it is the way we educate people. We need to educate people in a way where every action I take, how does that affect the whole? Because we'll make better decisions. But that's, you know, long-term philosophical, 100,000 square feet, me as an optimist, uh, and I don't want to sound uh, too silly. So, uh, so, but where I'd kind of go back to it in terms of the messaging and how we get people to understand it in the UK uh, is this, call it what it is. It's a human killer. It's a, if, it, if, we, if, we, if every time you and I, during this conversation, didn't use the word climate change, but we use the word global people killer, people would pay attention. And it's also true. You know, in the Iconist, I basically explain how there's primal laws as to why we ignore one thing and, and pay attention to another. And that you can use these laws, if you read my book, and I'm not trying to pump my book, I'm just telling you the ideas in it, uh, to because uh, you can get it from the library, right? Um, you can use these laws to take your message, your art, your music, three inches to the left to get the attention that you're not getting in the world overloaded with content that you're competing with. Okay. And one example that I'll give to get people to have an understanding of this very quickly that have never heard of me or it before is road signs and warning labels. There's billions of road signs and there's billions of warning labels. Um, so when it comes to life or death, we use the concepts in the iconist. And these, even though there's billions and billions of them, they keep us from running into each other and killing each other and drinking poison and turning into Spider-Man. Okay. With a radio, you know, walking into a radioactive area. Okay. So there, it, the question is, is there something about the anatomy of a road sign or the anatomy of a, of a warning label that you can apply to your brand, your, you, your, you as a cellist, you as a rock band, you as a, uh, a paint, an oil painter? And the answer is yes, and it works every time, and it doesn't matter how many people do it, okay? Um, you, that, that concept can work, and it applies to everything, and that's basically the book. You know, and also, uh, it's mostly a business book, but, you know, it's a... It's a it's a art and philosophy and design book masquerading as a business book, but yeah, you know. it's a getting noticed book. It's yeah, a it's a getting noticed book. book. It's a getting it's seen a book, and and I'm happy to pump your book because this is that's was what led me to you in the first place, and I think this is actually a good point to we'll just jump off quick fire for a bit. And okay, actually, yeah, I and I want to make one more comment on that, but I, can Go I on. make one? All right, well, and then I'll shut up, and then you're I'm in your hands. Uh, so the, you know the point, you know, one thing that is not kind of in the book is as much as it could be is this idea of like how, well, cause I didn't want to get woo, right? Is emotion, color, you know, I talk about the things that can enhance a road sign or a warning label. If you apply it to your, your niche or what you do in life, your vocation. 
Um, but one of the things I don't talk about because I didn't want to get woo is a concept of truth. Human beings have an inherent concept of truth. Okay. So, and I'll use Shakespeare as an example. If I hear the words, this above all to thine own self be true. Somehow we know inherently that that's true. We just know it. And it's iconic and it has power because it's simple and we know it to be true. So simple maxims, simple unavoidable truths amplify. So I think that telling the truth about what climate change is about, which is about um, human death, human compatibility, the ability to live it, like not wear yourself on the planet and suffer every day. That's really what we're talking about. And so I think that the message would go further if we told the truth of what the message is, which is not about the environment, you know, because it's hard when you're sitting in the UK. Why do you care about the environment if it's a rainy and you're heading down to the pub for, you know, a pasty or, you know, some bangers and mash, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's a ridiculous thing. But if, but if you said someone said global people killer and that's the truth, you don't care and it's coming for you, you would kind of go, huh, maybe I need to take a look at that. Yeah, great. Right. So in, in, in the book, you, you talk about, and I, and I, this is something that resonates with me about finding the deep truth, but then this theory of standing out and in the book, you call it blocks, a block. Could you, in a nutshell, tell me about this theory of blocks and how a block works? Yeah, I mean, I took the term block from what happens when you put a toy block in front of a baby. And when you put a toy block in front of a baby, they'll fixate on it because it's massive to them, monolithic. And it has an intricacy inside it, like a road sign and a warning label. A, a road sign and a warning label is identical to a baby's toy block. Um, and um, so, you know, uh, they'll, they'll, their eyes will fixate. So, you know, is there something about the anatomy of some big, simple, symmetrical thing with some intricacy that magnetizes the eye? And there is, you know, if, you know, for, for like, let's take an educational example. You know, every, I mean, even all over the world, people are, you know, we, people know Sesame Street right, where they use this kind of big, bold, monolithic, simple kind of uh, uh, big picture book communication. Like if you look at elementary school picture books in America, child picture, child learning books, they always have these big pictures next to the, the, the math lesson or whatever the lesson would be in the maths, as you call them, right? Um, well, the problem is, is that as we get above elementary learning, and teaching, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. And what I argue in the book is that human, that adults crave this elementary communication even more than children do. There's studies that show that even for a you know a you know a 40 year old man or woman, if they're studying something and there's a picture connected to it, a big simple photo or image, it actually changes their relationship to the communication to to the learning. They enjoy learning more, they learn faster, and their retention goes up astronomically if they can, if they can connect what they're learning to an anchor, an anchor. So a block is something that fixates your attention like a road sign or a warning label. I mean, it was your philosopher, I don't know, 300 years ago, John Locke, the guy that said we were all, you know, born a tabula rasa, a blank slate. I think uh, he said that, you know, dice... Uh, toy blocks was the best way to teach children, right? So the blank slate guy said that, you know, the best way to get people to learn uh, was through these, this block concept, right? Mm -hmm. These kind of simple monolithic things. Um, so I explain how to apply that to a painting. I explain how to apply it to music. I explain how to apply it 
to social change, which is, you know, you're what, you know, what we're talking about a little bit here. Um, so that's, I hope I've done a, a good job uh, encapsulating it, or, or, you know, uh, but that's how, that's where the idea of a block comes from. And it's basically a simple thing that you repeat that instantly will magnetize attention and hold attention. So what you can do once you understand how these things work is rather than something taking 50 years, like why do we call a Kleenex a Kleenex or a Coca Coke? We think of that as something that's an accident um, and that we hope for. But, what it, but basically what I'm telling you is to your desired audience, once you understand these primal, primordial rules of perception, I can make something iconic in your mind uh, in five minutes using the rules in this book uh, to any individual or specific audience that uh, with, with deliberation and at will uh, in a way that we would normally hope for over 50 years, but you can do it um, deliberate with deliberately and at will um, and make something iconic in the mind of any listener um, as a mechanism. Mm, wow. Yeah. I think in, and there's different terms for this, but I, I in, in, I hear stickiness a lot, how, what makes things sticky. And I, and what, what I learned from your book and I really loved it was the, the methodology of a block and, and especially the from an audio point of view you know you talk about michael jackson now you talk about um his music and 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 the the hooks the choruses the 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 riffs and the melodies that just uh become iconic and how you remember it and another thing about the van gogh as well you know talking about the multiple images of the sunflowers and the self-portraits and how they're and um sorry and um warhol and how that just sticks in your mind. And you know, when I think of Warhol, whether I think of the um, the the cans, the Campbell soup, and the different things that he did, and how they they stick in your mind. And I love it how it's translatable and trans you know transforms into other art forms. It, that was super interesting. Yeah, and it's what drew it's what drew me to you. You know, was the discipline of the Grandmaster Flash. I mean, I grew up, you know, I'm a child of the '80s, so I'm a huge Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five fan, right? But uh, but uh, was the 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 discipline of your personal, um, like your Instagram feed, the way you know you know. There's a lot of people that are iconists that don't that apply the rules maybe better than I do, but they don't know they're iconists. They just figured it out and they do it. Warhol was one of them. Van Gogh was one of them. Um, Michael Jackson was one of them, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but you know, there's a lot of other artists, you know, I would say the Robert Smith of the cure was one of them, <laughs> you know, is one of them. Uh, and I could name a, you know, I mean, I'm a, you know, child of the eighties in a lot of ways. So that to me was the greatest music, the, the greatest period in the history of pop music. And, and 50% of that music came from the UK. Um, whereas to now, maybe 1%, 2% of global music comes from the UK. Those artists are still being born. They're still making music in the UK, but we don't hear from them because the economics have changed. Mm -hmm. But the economics of music in the 80s allowed for um, a lot of iconists to come out of the UK. And that was probably the root of a lot of, you know, the, the early seeds of a lot of my ideas was music coming out of the, the uh, England in the 1980s. If we if we were to look at say we look at an icon, let's just pick out of bed. We'll we'll, cho we'll choose a musical icon. We'll look at someone like David Bowie, and you know if we were to think of his block and what would that be? Can a can a block be formed of multiple things, i.e., image, sound, personality, and experience? Does it is it does it tend to be one thing that 
that strikes through over everything else, or is it a mixture of things? It's well, I, th- I tend to think that there's like one to three major concepts that you can lead with to get people to understand you. I mean, what 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 David Bowie did so masterfully so long ago, you know, is, you know, we live in a client, we live in a world where people that are trans are finally not being alienated in the world. And I don't want to get into you know the politics of that. All I will say is I don't want anyone to feel alienated in the world. I know what that feels like. So even if I can't understand something, I want people to feel comfortable with their own skin and their lives, even if they're different. But if you look at it, you know, his, what he did of making this kind of gender bending image, you know, where he was not neither male nor female, he was the first person to ever do that in a kind of global way. Uh, long before Du Bois George, which, uh, who was also amazing, uh, 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 and long before a world now where that's become acceptable. So, you know, A, just the way he kind of created this third gender, you know, uh, in the 70s, you know, I think that was a major part of, um, you know, no, no one had ever seen anything like that before. So you, you kind of go, what is that? And then secondarily, you know, the, when you're making art, the key to, in the music, the kind of repetitive thing, the, the, the equivalent of the soup can in music is a simple nursery rhyme type melody. And David Bowie, uh, you know, uh, repeated. So a simple melody will lock attention the same way a warning, sable, a warning label or a soup can will. A warning label, a soup can, uh, and a... Um, road sign or a van go actually have the same toy block principles okay and in sonically that is a is a simple melody a childlike melody repeated you know i'm gonna say makusa right so david bowie his image wise he had something that was very simple and different so you kind of locked on it mm. uh and then musically uh this guy wrote luscious beautiful incredible melodies which he repeated in every song over and over and over again you can have the best singer in the world and if you don't have melodies no one will ever be interested in that music you can have the worst melody in the world and have a great singer sing it and nobody will be interested in that music melody as quincy jones says says melody is god's voice right wow. but it's the reason repetitive melody simple nursery rhyme type melodies it's the same reason da you know Da, 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 da. you know uh, ode to joy uh last four centuries and the same reason we listen to radiohead and the same reason we listen to david bowie and the same reason mama say mama samu makasa is completely gets into our bones right mm. yeah okay so th- I, I love that so a lot of the listeners to the uh to this podcast there's people that are solopreneurs freelancers people that work on their own creative people uh businesses marketers they'll be transfixed now with what you're saying because they every every business every person individual brand they're trying to stand out if i just quickly nip back to what you said about brand master flash and thank you what you say about brand master flash because I, I don't get a lot of feedback and when i do get feedback like that it's, it's amazing i tried to my i suppose my block and the block that i'm trying to hold up to people is enlightened brand strategy and i often have to explain what that is and that might be a problem but for me, enlightened brand strategies, coming up with a game plan for organizations for positive change and growth. It's a sense of enlightenment. And the reason where that came from, I was in a strategy session once and I was trying to find the deep truth. Like you mentioned earlier, finding the deep truth in a brand. 
And when there was lots, many, many light bulb moments, I'm talking really epic light bulb, light bulb moments where the founder was like finding things and really being feeling really good about bringing the deep truth of what they wanted their brand to be like. And he said to me, this is enlightening. And it stuck with me. I thought it is enlightening to, to really peel back the layers of who you are and then show that up to the world. And that's where enlightened brand strategy came from. And I, that was really the core thing that I wanted to tell people about what I did. And then around that, I, I come from an arti artistic background. I come from a design background. So I love, I love art. I love the, the smartness of design. So for me, I'm trying to get across the enlightened brand strategy, but it's nice to hear that actually the visual side of things come over as well. But to go back to other people, how can someone who's running a business, working in a business, how do they start to find the deep truth and create their block? Where does it come from? What do they need to be thinking about? It's such a great question. And I, and I've really enjoyed this interview, Johnny, like, uh, you know, it's, I was kind of gravitated to your taste and, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I, I've, I've, this has been a, a special conversation for me. Um, but, you know, what, what you call um, enlightenment, you know, I call that what I, I call that identity DNA. And with the first, the way that I, that I would answer your question is this, the way, the way that people take in, and, and listen, the word brand is just a word that's way overused. Okay. And the problem with the word brand, it's like the word marketing. If I want to get someone not to hire me, I use the word marketing with a CEO. They get the shakes. They associate the word with losing money or a cost, or a cost center. They don't associate it with growth because there's so many false prophets and charlatans out there. I, I use the word sales demand or demand generation. I, I don't even use the word because it means different things to different people. Same thing as the problem with the word brand. So what I use, when I use the word brand, people that are listening, the only thing that I mean is, the, is story. You tell a story visually. You tell a story in terms of values. You tell a story in terms of words you use, in terms of how you set up, do you set up a site like with uh, road sign principles that are in my book? Do you set, you know, do you message that way? Uh, so when I say we're the word brand, which I'm about to use as I answer, as I respond to uh, Johnny's statement, um, I, I just mean your story. Do you, how do people perceive your story visually and, and uh, uh, conceptually? Um, so to the first thing you have to understand is that the way people perceive products, services, muse, everything has changed with the internet and the digital revolution. So in other words, 20 years ago, even before, like we didn't really enter this world until the early aughts and it didn't really get, and it's rolled on another level since we went on phones in 2009. And then that peaked in 2012, right? So this is something that's happening in, in real time and is very fluid. Okay, but here's the difference before and after um, the digital revolution, okay? You could do selling things. You could make, you could sell before the devil revolution. You could make claims about yourself and you could make claims about yourself that you thought that people who were trying to find you uh, would care about, you know, we're, we're the best, we're the fastest, we're, you know, uh, you know, you could, you know, where we rock out, you know, no matter, no matter what it is, you know, I, I'm influenced by Picasso, but I've taken it to another level. Like you can make salesy comments. And it was actually effective. You had to do something to get people to look at you. There's also less things to look at. Like I said, and you know, the late, you know, by, well, but even by the late nineties, before the internet was rolling, we were subject to five to 7,000 advertising messages a day, as opposed to 1,000 in 1970. Right. Okay. So this is, so here, here's the, here's the answer. So now what's changed, what changed 
in the early aughts is now you can check everything in a 30 second Google search. So self-promotional claims are actually repulsive to people. Anything where you say, I'm awesome, repulses people. Um, so it used to be that you could have a mission statement in a company and it could have a certain set of values. And that would say one thing, you know, we want to treat our employees well, we want to have great products or great music that we bring to the world or great computer chip that we bring to the world. And then we'd say something else to our customers. This is the fastest chip, right? What the, what the internet did is it brought those two things together. The thing that inspires you, you personally and gets you on fire as an entrepreneur or as an artist or a designer or a creator um, is also the thing that is going to attract your customers. That thing is now true. That thing is now transparently integrated. So rather than having your mission statement, it needs to also be the, your block. The thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is also the thing that needs to make your customers choose you over everybody else. Okay. So that's the primary change that we're talking about. Right. So what I would say when I would say enlightened brand strategy is um, I think that's the way that guy used the word enlightenment. I'd be real curious if I talked to 10 of your clients, if I found a different word in terms of the pattern. Right. So one of the things that I'll go into when I'll go into an organization, say it's a business organization and uh, no matter how big the company is, I'll say, you know, how, who are your top 10 salespeople? And I'll interview them and I'll see, and I'll look for a pattern. And typically there's a pattern. So there's, you know, 300 people talking about 300 salespeople talking, you know, most companies have an 80, 20 rule where 20% of the salespeople do 80% of the work. And also I'll interview the 20%. Or, and I'll find out that what they're talking about, there's a pattern and they're not telling anybody else because they want all the sales for themselves or whatever. Uh, and in that, in that is typically some sort of road sign or warning label or block, right? Uh, that um, is what motivates people internally and what motivates people externally. Um, and so I will, you know, look, I will interview 10 of them. I'll, there'll be certain things that are a pattern that it creates that, that creates that trigger or that uh, ability to lock and hold attention on the, on the, or, or beat the competition over the, and I'll tell the CEO this, you, you need to have this Sesame street style across your website. Mm. So yeah, in a world where everyone can check something in a 30 second search, um, all, the only thing that's credible is the thing that says that you took the time to truly understand your customer and you set it oversized, like a Sesame street, like the count one, Two, when you say something oversized and you get that right thing, and it takes a lot of immersion to boil 100,000, you know, you know, companies exist because they solve problems. So it's hard to solve problems and go through years of innovating, whether it's engineering or science or business, and then say, I can lead with one to three things. It's an impossible thing to turn around and do. But it's, so it's a very immersive and it takes time. But if you can figure out what that one thing is and blow it up, just the sheer size and repetition of it says to your customer, this person took the time to figure out who I am. And so they will lock on you every time. Yeah, you know, I, I, I do a similar thing. And that's amazing what you said. It, it, it mirrors a lot of stuff that I do in terms of when I speak to a client, I say to them, who's, in the, who's on the front line? Who's in the trenches? And who is the closest to your customer? Let me have a conversation with them. And I love speaking to salespeople because they get the questions, they get the complaints, they get the objections, they get the, they get the wins, they get the, there's that quote, isn't there? Every sale starts with a no. 
And it's what you do <laughs> after that. <laughs> I like that. I like and, that. And, and yeah. how do you get from the no to a yes? And that journey from the no to the yes, that's where the nuance is. That's where the magic is, where the juice is right there. And if you can find out where that is and what goes on in that in that space, then I agree. There, there, there's a block in there. And I love yeah, that. Yeah, and it's so rare that I go into a company. I don't know what your experience is, Johnny, but like where when I talk to the salespeople, the top salespeople, and I look for that pattern, and I find that block, that simple statement that will cause customers to lock, that it matches with anything that the company is communicating. But what I tell any company or, or individual is where you find your road sign, that simple statement that you blow up, is there's an intersect point between what your customer most emotionally cares about and the best of you. There's a point where that crosses. And that intersect point is where you'll find your Sesame Street statement. And it never sounds like a slogan. You know, the slogans are the enemy of a block statement. A block is, you know, Simon Sinek says start with why. It's only half true. You start with why or you start with the problem you solve. And you blow it up. And it's, it's not just enough to, solve, to have that why or to have that problem you solve. When you make it overly big and you repeat it, it has an effect on our lizard brain that causes us to lock. And I don't care if people are looking at a hundred customers. If they see a repetitive statement that corresponds to the, the emotional concern they have, and it's true, uh, they will choose you every single time. I agree. I, I actually yeah. did a podcast um, that was uh, about, you know, start with why. I said, no, don't start with why. Start with want. Because you, don't, you can't find your why until you truly know what you want. And that goes back to that DNA about mm -hmm. finding out what you truly, truly want, and then you can find your purpose. Okay, I'm mindful of I'm mindful of your time. I'm mindful. No, my time, time is my time is whatever. I was late, so you know I, I no, I'm good. So I okay. I'm, well, I'll I'll steal you a bit yeah. longer. You know what? What I'd like to do is I'd like to um I'd, the way I'd like to end this conversation. I talked. We've talked about some amazing things. I love the concept of blocks. I think it's really, really interesting. I love the fact that you talk about truth and DNA, it, for me, it kind of goes into purpose as well. And when we, when we spoke a few weeks ago, we'd started talking about climate within five minutes of having a conversation. And it's funny yeah. that we gravitated towards that. And I don't know how it mm. happened, but we just ended up there because I was telling you about what I did. You were talking about your new projects and your work. So I'm going to bring it back here actually, because I, my my journey is changing as a strategist because although I I'm a I'm a, a specialist I sort of a specialist I would say I'm still a student really in brand building and it's all about identity design it's about finding the truth about who people are and how they want to project themselves to the world the the enlightenment is is has is a big part of what I do and I, and what I would like what I like to try and do with businesses is in that deep truth is it, do they give a shit about people and do they care about the planet, the planet and its people? Because if they do, I, I try and encourage them that it should be part of their identity. And I think as, as a whole, businesses have got a big part to play in, in redeveloping the way that we live. Okay, because it's all part of consumerism at the end of the day. Businesses sell products to the world, and we've all got a part to play in this. And I think if we can get businesses to not just start thinking circular, not to start thinking sustainable, but to start thinking regenerative, it's about putting more in than we take out in every respect from in terms of physical things, products, materials, 
our, our the way that we produce everything, but also the way that we put into people and educating people and making the world a better place. Okay, so we've got here, we've got the the problem, which is the businesses trying to get them to think more regenerative, and we've got blocks. So the question is here is how how do businesses start taking their involvement in climate change a little bit more seriously? Um, I truly believe that every business does care about it, but they're not doing much about of it. But how can we use identity and blocks within businesses to get them to start reframing their narrative and, and think a little bit differently? Such a great question. And it kind of goes a little bit to what we were just talking about. Uh, and it's something I'm very interested in. I'm, I mean, I'm on the advisory board of Forbes Ignite, which is the social innovation, social meaning, meaning in business arm of Forbes media. And so that's the kind of work we're doing there. The kind of basic philosophy at, at Forbes Ignite is, uh, you know, if business did a lot of things that harmed the world by just going and thinking in part space way, you know, uh, business, you know, business is, is going to fix the world. Pro the ability to make a profit drives, profit can fix the world, right? So the, 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 the CEO and the, 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 the chief uh, strategy officer over at Forbes Ignite, their basic philosophy is that uh, to fix the world through business, which I, you know, and that will go to my point. So, so to kind of, but to answer the question, it, it goes back to this concept of how, uh, I, I don't know how I would have answered this question before the internet, but I can answer this question very well post-internet, okay? And that is the internet has changed the way that we process information, it's changed the way that we choose companies, it's changed the way that we choose stories or brands or anything, okay? And that goes back to, you can check any claim in 30 seconds. So if you, if you do something that's self-braggadocio, self-promotional, it's a turnoff because people can check it. So if you don't tell them the truth, they know it 30 seconds. So people have to feel like they're getting the truth. So I would argue the way that, how do you promote a company or do something to stand out in the modern world? do something better than everyone else and say it simply and repetitively. But to get very specific about how that, what that means to answer your question is, you know, we have this concept in America of the triple bottom line. You have that concept overseas. Do you know what I mean by that? The planet, people and profit. Yeah. So I remember when I first started to hear that term 15 years ago, and, you know, this is, I was working on the Iconist early days, you know, whatever I, you know, maybe it was, it was a seed and, as I saw the internet doing what it was doing, I kind of I thought that was a silly statement because I realized that what we, you know, the, the, where you can check out whether you want to work for a company or not is called glass door. What the internet does is it creates glass walls. So what I would say to people when they would ask me about the triple bottom line is I would say in 20 years, every single company will need to be a triple bottom line company. It'll be called being a company because people can see what you do. And now that everyone can see what you do, they care about people, planet, they care about the people, and they care about the planet. If you don't care about those things, people will see it, and they won't be interested in you, okay? Because ultimately, we're tribal human beings, and this, I, this period of time that we've lived in these artificial boxes, and we get into this roving artificial box to go work into another artificial box, uh, this corporatization of the world is very, very new. Our evolutionary biology is not caught up to it. We're eventually, we're, we're community-driven human beings. That's how we thrive, right? So when we see companies 
that care about the planet and you don't, the environment isn't the only way you care about the planet. There's a lot of issues going on in the planet other than the environment, right? Uh, and you care about people. That's, that's what we want to see. It's, in our, it's, it's primal. Even if we think we're not social people, when we see people doing that in a way that's truthful and genuine, it, it fills us, even if we're the most cynical, okay? So every company is a triple bottom line company. In a, in a world where you can Google anything in 30 seconds, a good example of what I'm, so it's not just that you can check an, a claim in 30 seconds, it's also information can be shared all over the world in an instant. If you, the Arab Spring is an example of this in 2012, right? Th those, those protests and those movements were organized on Facebook and Twitter. Because with the instant sharing of information, you can be under the yoke of a tyrant for 40 years but the minute everyone can see that at the same time, as long as you think it's only you, you won't do anything about it. But when you, everyone can share information in real time, that's when people say, will say, I'd rather die than live like this. Okay. So we live in a time where information is instantly shared and can be instantly checked. So the only way to survive in the future uh, as a company is to be working on people and be working on the planet. And when I say the planet, I just don't, I don't mean environmentalism. I mean, every aspect. That is, if you want to be seen as every, in the next 10 years, every company will be a triple bottom line company or they'll be gone. Uh, and that is just, that's my view of it. I don't think you're doing anything special. I think it forces you to be whole, to have to be, to take to to engage with your community, whether it's local or global. I think that is the only way to survive uh, in the future, I think it will be demanded of you. And I think if you don't do it, you're going to look weird. I agree. And I think, yeah. um, and the, the main point here is that one, no one's going to work for you and no one's going to buy off you. So they, and, and we look at, we're going to have to look at Gen Z and younger generations coming through. This is what they want. These are their values. Now that the, you know, they're the people, when you look at, uh, extinction rebellion or look at the activists, the people that are in the streets fighting for it, black lives matter or, 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 any kind of campaign it's you know 80 90 of them are under the age of 30 the you know, younger generation are, they've grown up with this so they expect yeah. they expect it they don't they, you can't fool them because this is all they've ever known and that we do you, you're so right johnny i mean we live in a time where it's basically the general consensus that people interview companies now yeah you know it, you know i just did a company in canada that ha that does uh um you know, employee experience. And, um, and uh, you know, in researching and doing that brand, I spent a year telling that story, um, is uh, the, it's a competition for talent. And people are choosing where they work based on the values of the company and based on the, uh, the livability of the company. And one of the things that's really interesting is this woman had created this incredible data set surveys to what made her uh, as to why people stay at companies and what made her survey why i wanted to work with her different it's called sparked and and uh why i wanted to work with her is because um i almost see the brands i do as a portfolio like i these days i'm so busy i choose companies based on what i think the social impact will be so what made her survey different than any other survey company is most surveys measure the opinions of employees this survey that this woman has developed over 20 years only measures the emotion of employees, how, what they're experiencing. And the reality is, and research shows us that the people will stay or leave a company based on how they feel, only based on how they feel. 
And the, we are community-driven people. There's an incredible book called Community by Peter Block we, that explains it. There's a great book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe that kind of go into, Peter Block explains how we can organize these things and on the modern world. Um, Sebastian Younger explains in Tribe why we're this way. But, you know, we, we are community-driven people. And now that everything is glass created by a digital world, uh, if you're not thinking, if, you're, if the local and global community are not a part of your identity DNA, what a, a customer picks up the moment they think to look at you, um, A, the only reason they're not moving on is because nobody's do, nobody in your field is doing it. But if you do it, you're going to win every time. That's what people want to see. It's in their biology. That's my, uh, that's my, that's what I've observed. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Wow, Jamie, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for your time, mate. I just, I, I love your work. I love your, I like your, everything that you're saying. I like all your opinions and I, I'm, I'm here just in awe actually, because to go back to what we spoke about at the beginning, it's, it's, it's rare for me at the moment to find people that mirror, mirror my similar values and how I see the world and you know and and how and and an optimistic you know really optimistic about there is things that we can do and there's things that we can change the way that we live and behave and you're just shouting about that all day long and i love it and i can't wait for the new book in the in the in the new year is it that, that yeah it comes out? out it was going to come out in october but we pushed it the book comes out in april the invisible machine wow great great yeah great title yeah but but yeah and you know and again i'm a fan of of you know not to slap each other on the back too much but i'm a fan of your work and uh you know and and i and now i know for great reason i think this was i don't think i've ever had a conversation um in this period of time quite as broad i don't i've just never covered this kind of ground or this much ground uh before so now i'm a i'm a fan for good reason johnny good and, and so hopefully this is the beginning of a friendship you know, and, uh, you know, I am working on that, that environment project out in rural Oregon, my friend bought 1500 acres, and he's turning it into a carbon sequestration, educational facility and farm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I become I'm the artistic director there, and I'm developing an artist residency and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm interested in this subject, but not again, from because I care about climate, I'm only doing it because I care about people. Yeah. And we didn't, and we didn't even get talking about drawdown as well. That's another hour there. <laughs> I know. Right? I know. We'll have to do this again. You know, we we'll let it cool we down will. and we'll do it again. You know, we will. Yeah. So anyone listening or watching, where would you like to send them? Where, where, where can they find out more about you and your work? Well, they can go to the iconist.org, T H E I C O N I S T. Uh, they can, uh, if they Google the iconist, my book will come up. Uh, if you can't afford it, you can always uh, get it from the library. Um, and, you know, I'm a person that really does like to talk to people and engage with people. And so I tell, you know, and I, I'm going to say something and I, and, I, and I really mean it. You know, if, the, if you can't afford the book, don't understand a concept, don't want to get the book, um, you can go to the Iconist. You can send me a message or jamie at theiconist.org. J-A-M-I-E. And um, I will give anybody 20 minutes to help them solve a problem. So I like talking to, it's kind of what you said about the salespeople. They're like connected to the customer. I don't ever want to not be incredibly connected to people. So, um, you know, reach out to me if there's something you want to talk about. And I will, like I said, I'll give anybody some time 
uh, to solve a problem or get them to understand a concept related to themselves. But yeah, um, so yeah, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's in most, you know, uh, every, you know, most bookstores all over the country in the United States. Um, and, you know, you, we just uh, published, you know, in Korea and we're about to publish in China. And so there we go. Brilliant. Well, I mean, yeah. that's very kind for the offer as well for that, for the, for the listeners. Okay. Thank you again. It's been amazing. And we'll definitely do this again soon. All right. I love it. Thank you, Johnny. I, I really, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. As you can see, I could have spoken to Jamie for hours. We've got so much in common and I think I'm going to have to get him back on the show. We're going to have to talk about more things because I only got through a fraction of my questions. Um, if you want to find out more about Jamie, as always, his information will be in the show notes. I'll put it in the comments or the information on the platform that you're either listening to this podcast or you're watching the video uh, and feel free to reach out with him. I think he's an awesome guy. It's not very often that you get to speak to super intelligent, creative individuals who mirror your values, who have the same interests. Um, and Jamie was one of those. So yeah, it was a real honor to talk to him. If you do like this show, I know there hasn't been a lot going out recently, but if you do like the work that I produce, do please like, share, subscribe, all the normal things. Do comment. If you don't like it, do all the same as well. Please, I'd like to know. If you want to be on the show and you, you feel like you know, you're a creative person and you're interested in the whole climate movement or you've just got a story to tell, reach out. I'd love to speak to you um, and we'll try and get you on the show. But as always, be useful, be kind. I'll see you all soon. Bye-bye.